Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The new Netflix documentary, Crip Camp, is a must-watch. That's not just because it's only the second-ever documentary released by a production company helmed by a former president and first lady. Yes, Crip Camp was produced by Barack and Michelle Obama. But if you stumbled onto it without knowing that little factoid, you'd still be reeled in and then blown away. The one-hour, 47-minute film begins at Camp Jened. The rundown camp in the Catskills became a destination for campers with disabilities. And the freedom and empowerment they found there in the 1960s and 70s would foment a revolution. I wanted to be part of the world, but I didn't see anyone like me in it. I hear about a summer camp for the handicapped run by hippies. Somebody said you probably will smoke dope with the counselors. And I'm like, sign me up. Have to catch an edit and find yourself. There I was. I was at Woodstock. You wouldn't be picked to be on the team back home. But at Jeanette, you had to go up the back. Even when we were that young, we helped empower each other. It was allowing us to recognize that the status quo is not what it needed to be. And that is from the trailer for Crip Camp, a must-see documentary now on Netflix. And joining us today to talk about the film is a former camper and celebrated disability rights activist who you heard there, the final voice you heard in that clip. It's Judith Heumann. Um, Judy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Now, Judy, in your new memoir, it's called Being Human. You write that at camp, you were, quote, drunk on the freedom of not being a burden. How were places like Camp Jeanette and the other camps you went to a change from, quote, unquote, real life? Well, the change was pretty dramatic in a number of ways. Um, I'm a post-polio quadriplegic, and I need assistance and have since I was a child. Uh, getting dressed and undressed, getting in and out of bed. At that point, when I was going to camp, I didn't have a motorized wheelchair Mm. um, because they didn't have them really until the 60s. And I had polio in 1949. So I was very dependent on my mother and my father and my brothers when they got older and family, friends and relatives. But when I went to camp, Um, There were other people, my counselors, who could help me getting dressed and undressed and going to the bathroom. And there were more people available. I didn't have to rely just on one person. You know, when I was having to rely on my mother, and you hear this, I think, in other parts of Crip Camp where other disabled people are speaking, you know, we had to kind of measure what we were asking our family. Mm -hmm. Because my mother had responsibility for me and my brothers and a lot with my father And so she didn't really have time to gaze into the closet with me and help me look at what clothes I wanted to wear. And I couldn't get to my closet. Um, When I had polio, my parents had just recently bought a house in Brooklyn, not a very big house, but a comfortable house. Mm -hmm. But they had to build a bedroom and a bathroom because everything else was upstairs. And they didn't get good guidance on how big to build the bedroom and the bathroom. So the way the closet was situated, it was near the bed and there was like less than a foot Mm. to be able to get into the closet. So there was no way for me using a wheelchair to be able to open the door and get out what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So my mother would go in and take out. And if I didn't like it, 
then you could get into an argument or not. <laughs> but at camp, you know, I could just, you know, talk to a counselor or another camper. We could kind of go through what I had. I could decide what I wanted to wear. I could take something out there. Oh, no, I didn't want to wear that. Let's look at something else. And those little things are really big things for anyone at any age, particularly if you want to be exercising those kinds of choices. So camp went from enabling me and others to see how choice was important. And then it escalated into much broader areas of discussion and thought. What did I want to be when I grew up? How come other people weren't talking to us who had disabilities about what we wanted to be? Hmm. We didn't see ourselves reflected in media, like what was going to happen to us. And, and learning about your life in Cripcamp uh, was such an eye-opener for me. You're clearly such an intelligent person, as your life has shown in so many ways. Yet your mother had to fight just to get you into school. You were considered a, quote, fire hazard. I mean, it just seems, it seems unbelievable. Do you find that younger people today are sometimes just astonished by the things that were considered normal back in the 50s and, and 60s even? Yeah, definitely for non-disabled people. I think for many disabled people also, they're surprised about it, but not as surprised. Hmm. Because while the kinds of discrimination that existed uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s where kids could be denied the right to go to school and have to go to home instruction, have a teacher come to your house, um, discrimination is still something that disabled people face on a pretty regular basis. So it may not know about that kind of discrimination, but they can relate it to other discrimination they may be experiencing today. Hmm. You also wrote in, in your memoir, again, that's called Being Human. It's, it's a very good read. You wrote, Camp, I thought, is what it would feel like if society included us. Was that because so many people there were also people with disabilities, or was there more to it, that feeling at, the, at these camps? Well, I think... One of the reasons why it was important that there were so many disabled people in reflecting on what the world could look like is instead of being one person in a crowd, having more than one person with a disability who was involved in whatever, you know, whether it was the city council, your local community, where you didn't feel so much like an other. Mm -hmm. I think you'll hear disabled people um, frequently talk about how they feel like the other. People don't understand what some of the issues are that we're dealing with, and frequently it's difficult to talk to people about some of the simplest things that one might need. Um, so... Being at camp, it was kind of an equalizing experience mm -hmm. where we, I mean, there were counselors, there were adults there, so they clearly had different authority, but we, as you can see in the film and in the book, we respected each other, we listened to each other, mm -hmm. we valued each other's views, and in the broader society frequently, that didn't happen and doesn't necessarily happen today. 
And you also had so much fun. It's it's very clear in this film that this was just such a release um, to the point that, as the film acknowledges, there was at one point an outbreak of sexually transmitted infections. And the film really doesn't flinch from showing that side of things. Was it awkward to let all of us strangers in on sort of reliving your adolescence and just how wild some of these times got at Camp Jeanette? Well, I mean, what happened at the camp was they were um, scabies. Right, so you could get that from many, many different ways. So, but I think what's important about the film is that it does talk from the voices of disabled people about sexuality. And Mm -hmm. there really are hardly any teenagers, regardless of disability, who, you know, would be going to a camp where there wouldn't be any thought, discussion, about one's sexuality, because that's really when one is beginning to, you know, change and mm-hmm. one's sexuality. And I mean, I think, you know, when you look at Jimmy or Jim Lebrecht in the film, one of the directors, when you see the film, he is really a very cute guy. Yeah, he was adorable. And Right. And but I think disabled people at the camp the girls, you know, we definitely thought he was a hot looker. Um, he didn't feel that way mm-hmm. when he was in his community, community, mainly with non-disabled kids. And so I think, you know, for some people, it was the first time that they could see themselves in a way that their um, counterparts, when they were back in the community, we're seeing themselves, hmm. you know, so I think um, it really was a time for people to explore, to express, and to be, I don't think it's right to think that Jeanette was a, you know, a sexually active, uh, age-inappropriate uh, environment. It really wasn't, mm-hmm. um, but it was definitely where people were having opportunities to experience their sexuality, engage in pretty age-appropriate activities at that time, and expand themselves as human beings mm-hmm. to be on a par with their brothers and sisters and with their neighbors. And in addition to those personal awakenings that the film portrays so well, um, Crip Camp also depicts a part of history. I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't familiar with this prior to the film, and that's the 504 sit-in that took place during the Carter administration. Um, Let's listen to a clip from the film. The Sable in Action decided to have a demonstration in New York City in front of Nixon headquarters. We decided that we were going to sit down in the street and we were going to stop traffic. So at 4.30 in the afternoon, we formed this huge circle. We cut off four streets. You get the call to action, to the barricades. You know, Judy would call it. I remember being on the ground with these big trucks coming at you, going, whoa. It was a very unusual demonstration. I mean, people are not used to seeing a whole lot of folks in wheelchairs. And you had to back up. I mean, you had to back up if you were on the wrong side in front of that young woman. They were announcing paraplegic stop traffic in Manhattan. 
There were only 50 of us. But basically, with the one street, we were able to shut the city down. And that is from the Netflix documentary Crip Camp. That last voice you heard on that clip was, of course, Judy Human, who is our guest today. She's a noted disability rights activist. Her new book is called Being Human. Um, it's definitely worth a read. Judy, these 504 sit-ins, what triggered these protests back in 1977? So let me just explain that what you just played were demonstrations from 1972. And this was... Um, We were having demonstrations in 1972 because President Nixon had vetoed the Rehabilitation Act. And the Rehabilitation Act had Section 504 in it. So after we had those demonstrations in 72, there were um, a number of years, five years, that uh, the disability community with government and others were working on developing the rules to implement 504. And then there were another set of demonstrations in 1977, which is also shown in the film where a group of 150 disabled people, including myself, um, took over health, education, and welfare. Um, What was important about these different activities and 504 in particular is that it was the first major provision, um, anti-discrimination provision, 504 states that you may not discriminate against a disabled person if you're receiving money from the federal government. So that meant universities and hospitals, local governments, state governments, transportation systems, etc. That was a huge, important milestone. Hmm. And um, there was a there was an issue going on where the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. Uh, Joseph Califano, when President Carter came in after the Republicans, he was going to do a review of those proposed regulations. And we had heard from within the agency that they were looking at making significant changes. So there were demonstrations around the United States in 1977, and the ones in the San Francisco area lasted 28 days. And that is a long time uh, for a demonstration to so last. The longest, the longest demonstration in a federal building in the history of the U.S. <laughs> that is something to be proud of. And, you know, today we think about the Americans with Disability Act. But what this film makes clear is there were so many steps that were taken before we ever got to that point that, that laid the groundwork. And that was exactly that was what you and the other activists were up to. Um, and our second guest today, I actually want to introduce somebody else into this conversation because she has a St. Louis perspective on this. And this is such an important issue. And that guest is Colleen Starkloff. She's the co-founder of the Starkloff Disability Institute and wanted to also understand how some of this played out in St. Louis. So, Colleen, welcome to the show. Oh, gosh, Sarah, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for bringing Judy in and this great helping to tell this great story through her lens and the lens of other disability rights advocates who've changed the world. Yeah, and Colleen, I have to thank you for connecting us with Judy in the first place because her story is just amazing. Um, But hearing about these sit-ins in San Francisco and in Washington, D.C., when did the disability rights movement begin to gain steam here in St. Louis? Well, actually, um, it it began, uh, the nucleus of it began when my late husband, Max Starkloff, was 
incarcerated in a nursing home, and that's the way he felt about it. He <laughs> felt that incarceration was the right word because our society didn't have better options. Judy talked about choice earlier in this interview. Um, we didn't have a lot of choices back in those days, and for a person with a high-level spinal cord injury like Max, who needed help, the same kind of help Judy described, bathing, dressing, getting out of bed, going to the bathroom, doing any He couldn't cut his food or um, cook it, you know. So there was no personal assistance at the time. Um, there were no lifts on buses, no curb cuts, accessible housing wasn't in very wasn't existing and it's it's still in very little supply today. So um, he ended up in that nursing home for lack of community supports that would empower him to live in his own home in the community. And he fought against that. And his I came along as the physical therapist there, met him, fell in love, and but I fell in love with who he was as a person. Mm-hmm. But the more I got to know him, he was a man of great principle, great charisma great compassion for others and using his experience, his lived experience with disability and and what he didn't have, set out to create choices in the community so people with disabilities could have a much better life and not be incarcerated themselves. And we still fight that battle today. Mm -hmm. But um, that's that's the beginning. Yeah, that's the beginning. And, and as you said, you're still fighting that battle today. And Judy, you, you mentioned that thought earlier. I want to come back to that, that it's easy for us to look back on this and say, oh, back in the 50s, they put people in institutions. All that is in the past. But there are still struggles that remain today. Judy, what do you see as the biggest issue that's there in front of the community of, of people with disabilities? So I think there, I'm not going to just talk about the biggest, but uh, maybe a couple. One of them is there are millions of disabled people who are not identifying as having a disability, either because they're not aware of the fact that they're protected by laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act or Section 504 or other laws, um, or they are afraid of identifying. And the reason why I say this is a very big issue is because there, according to the Centers for Disease Control, are approximately 56 million disabled people in the United States. So if a larger percentage of disabled people with disabilities like diabetes or epilepsy or depression or anxiety or multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or lupus or any one of a number of of hundreds of disabilities if people saw themselves blindness, deafness. So there's the obvious disabilities where people see us and know we have a disability, but then they're the majority of those with invisible disabilities. Hmm. So I think it's critical that people who have these disabilities um, know that they're protected to be able to um, speak about their lives, tell their stories. I think other issues of concern are right now with the COVID-19. I'm also very concerned, not just about the immediate issues of whether or not disabled people will receive the services they need if they need to go to a hospital. Mm -hmm. There are many groups fighting for this to make sure we're not treated differently. But the economic outcome of the pandemic, I'm really concerned that we have to make sure 
disabled people are at the table as our communities are uh, addressing economic issues that are going to be coming before us so that we don't lose jobs disproportionately to other people that we can look at being able to be brought back into the world of work like other people. Mm -hmm. We don't want it to be um, last hired, first fired. Colleen, I know at the Starkloff Disability Institute, um, the workplace issues are, are paramount for you guys. Do you think companies today are, are thinking properly about these issues of inclusion and and um, thinking about what the law actually says here if properly applied? Or do you think we really all need a wake-up call on that? Well, I, I think we've made great strides, uh, uh, Sarah, in this regard. We have a lot of companies that have been working with us and and. Companies are creating diversity and inclusion uh, programs within their organizations, wanting to be more diverse and inclusive of all people who have been heretofore marginalized. Um, and there's also the law, uh, the um, Department of Labor's, Labor's uh, 503 law that says that if you're a federal contractor, you need to be at least 7% of your workplace inclusive of people with disabilities. But I think... Uh, what I hope is that, that that when we get back to whatever the new normal is going to be, that we don't lose sight of the progress we've been making in that regard and that we don't mm-hmm. see that the ideal situation is having, oh, let's hire disabled people and have them working from home. That that's a, I think anybody who's working from home now has pretty much figured out this is a very isolating experience. Mm-hmm. And we like to have the socialization. We like to have the face-to-face, the relationship building that goes on, and the depth of conversations that happen. I, I haven't had a very deep conversation on Zoom yet. Uh, not that Zoom's not a great opportunity, but the connections that we have with people deepen who we are and denying people with disabilities are, are seeing short-sightedly that we could have, that's the way to bring them into our workforce. I really hope companies don't do that. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a great point. It to can make. be, you know what, Sarah, there are on the other side of that coin, there are some people who cannot for various reasons work outside the home and opening up opportunities for them brings them into the workforce. We're seeking independence for people with all people with disabilities. And in this regard, it's economic independence through employment that we really need to go after and lift our people out of poverty. We're- that That is, yeah, that is absolutely right. Judy, I want to bring it back to you here on our last question. I know that so many people are watching Crip Camp and they're also reading your memoir. What do you hope they take away um, from that experience? I hope that they can, with both Crip Camp and being human, recognize that there's a lot that they don't know, that they need to speak with disabled people in their communities, they need, and to themselves or other people in their families. They need to really listen to the stories that people have to tell or share their stories. I hope that these uh, two pieces plus others that are out there, really um, allow people to begin to recognize that when we talk about diversity, it needs to include disabled people, disabled people with all types of disabilities, from all racial backgrounds, from all socioeconomic backgrounds, from different sexual orientated backgrounds, religions, et cetera, that we cut across everything. So I hope people see the absence and recognize that they really want to get rid of the absence of disability and have 
diversity be truly inclusive. Well, that is a great thing uh, to leave us with today. So Judy Human, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. And Colleen Starkloff of the Starkloff Disability Institute, thank you so much for joining us today as well. Thank you, Sarah. And can you tell the listeners, or can I tell the listeners, that Judy will be coming to St. Louis to talk about Crip Camp and her book as soon as we, as soon as it's safe to do that. And anybody who'd like to be included could call the Starkloff Disability Institute and make sure they get invited. That is a great thing to plug. Thank you so much for that, Colleen. And that film, again, is Crip Camp. Judy's book is called Being Human, an unrepentant memoir of a disability rights activist. I want to thank them both for joining us. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.